0: Welcome to Capital Considerations, the podcast that takes complex ideas from the investment world and makes them accessible to everyone. I'm your host, Tony Roth, Chief Investment Officer of Wilmington Trust. Never could we have predicted in January that 2020 would be unprecedented in so many ways. It's really been quite a roller coaster. We continue to face a pandemic, domestic unrest, an economy that has yet to fully reopen and continues to struggle in a lot of ways. And we have a critical and highly contested presidential election coming up in less than 100 days. So as we move deeper into the summer and try to understand what the next normal will be, it's time to take a look at what has worked so far this year and where we think the investment opportunities are for the rest of the year. Here with us today to discuss our strategic plan for success in the second half of 2020 is our head of investment strategy, Megan Chu. Megan, thanks so much for joining today.
1: Thanks, Tony. Happy to be here.
0: Great to have you, as always. The number one question that we keep on being asked by clients is, now that the market has recovered, is this time to get out? Would this be a good time to put new money into equities, or is this rather a time to take the money out of equities if you're already in the market? And it's an interesting question because we've seen this massive disconnect between the economy and the markets where... The economy appears to be struggling, but the markets don't. Um, they're essentially at all-time highs today. And we look at the S&P and the NASDAQ. Um, they're actually up year over year. We're seeing the S&P trade at over 20-time estimates of 2021 earnings, and NASDAQ at almost 30 times 2021 earnings. These are the highest levels since the tech bubble. So really, the starting place for any conversation around investing is, are equities a valuable strategy going forward, given the economy and given how expensive they would seem to be? What do you think, Megan?
1: That is the million dollar question, certainly. And it's a really hard time to be an investor today. Um, clearly, there's a disconnect seemingly in where the markets and the economy are trading, as you highlighted, Tony. I more often find myself in the optimist camp. It seems much easier in today's environment to find reasons to not be investing in equities. Uh, it's it's actually always easier, I think, to find reasons to be bearish, and you tend to sound smarter too when you're more negative. But we would encourage our clients to be taking a long-term approach today. It seems like in the short term, there is an inadequate amount of downside risk priced into the market, uh, at least relative to what we would prefer for entry levels into the equity market. But in this unprecedented uh, economic contraction, we think it's important to extend your time horizon and be looking further out than maybe you normally would. There's several supports for the market right now, not the least of which is stimulus from the Fed and from Congress, Uh, meaningful progress on vaccines, and what we've seen as a robust initial improvement in the economic data. Uh, the other thing I think that's really worth mentioning as really it relates to money. equities, and and yeah. one of the reasons why we continue to think equities are a viable investment yeah. option, um, particularly for long-term investors, is the interest rate environment. It's very much related to the Fed it's stimulus it's fed. and some of the support we've gotten there. Um, yeah. But if you think about a 10-year government bond yield below 60 basis points, and you compare that to the dividend yield you get on U.S. equities of nearly three times that, even more if you're going to go outside of the U.S., it's evident that there are few other places to be putting your money right now. And that is one of the reasons why we continue to invest in equities in this market.
0: Yeah, the so-called Tina argument. I don't know if you've met Tina, but um, Tina is there is no alternative. And she's very present today because in that rate environment that you've just described, there really aren't a lot of good options. As of here in late July, we look at the 12-month return of the S&P. It's actually up on a total return basis, about 7% over the last 12 months. And that's despite what we've lived through, which has been pretty crazy. Okay, so let's look deeper into the market, Megan. There are five companies that when you take them out of the market, the markets are not, in fact, up, they're down. And the valuations of those five companies, the Apples, the Amazons, Netflix, Google, um, Facebook, et cetera, are so incredibly high that it's hard to imagine them growing enough in coming years to justify the kinds of values that they now trade at. So the question that one has to ask is, is this an untoward moment to get in the market with that concentration? Um, Maybe it would make sense to invest and and essentially carve out those names. What do you think of that idea?
1: Well, I think the concentration of the market is a risk, but it's probably one that's a bit overblown uh, at this point. We have seen periods in the past where the market has been as concentrated or even more, uh, so-called top heavy than what we're seeing today. But it's something that we're, we're watching and monitoring. I find it astounding that if you look at the return over the last five years, the return uh, of those five names, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, and Facebook has been 10 times the cumulative return of the rest of the market. So a huge bifurcation in terms of performance and leadership being driven by relatively few number of players. We think that there's justification for this. Uh, If you look at the growth profiles of these companies, if you look at the uh, balance sheets, these are really solid, robustly growing companies. Uh, year over year earnings per share growth for these five has been, uh, about 13% compared to negative 17% for the rest of the market. So it's no wonder that these stocks are outperforming going forward, whether these stocks continue to outperform very much depending on the economic environment because one of the reasons that they've done so well is that they are generating their own growth in a low growth economic environment. So if we saw the economy pick up, I would expect the rest of the market to uh to start to move higher and we might not see that same movement in these stocks that have already run so much.
0: Yeah, I mean, can you imagine Megan if we had to survive this pandemic from a work a family, a learning standpoint, without the technology ecosystem that's been created. We're speaking right now over WebEx. Everything that we do seems to be enabled by technology. Amazon packages that we're receiving, of course, talking on our Apple devices, whatever it may be. So in a sense, you can sort of understand why these companies are as valuable as they are.
1: Absolutely. And I think we're at a pivotal point in the economy and and really this is ex, this pandemic has accelerated some important structural shifts in the way we live and the way we work and the way we rely on technology. And these companies are at the forefront of that. So I think that they will continue to be uh, leaders in the market, but clearly it's like anything else. If you are. Uh, If you're a sports team and you're overly dependent on one or two key players and those key players get injured um, or they have a bad game, the rest of the team can suffer greatly. So being overly dependent on just a handful of names clearly could lead to higher volatility, but we don't think their performance is unjustified.
0: Megan, these five large tech companies have done incredibly well, but at the same time, there are large swaths of the economy that have underperformed that would appear to present so-called value. Um, and in fact, while it may be a bit of an outdated paradigm through which to look at the market, because there's so many other dimensions of equities, not just the cost at which they trade or the multiple at which they trade, things like momentum uh, or liquidity, et cetera. But when we look at these companies that don't trade at these high multiples, like financials, like industrials, like healthcare, in, in most cases, we see a big cohort of companies that At some point, we would expect to come back once the COVID is behind us. When is the right time to start to de-emphasize these big tech companies in favor of, in a sense, the rest of the economy?
1: You're totally right, Tony. There are much more complex, multifaceted ways of looking at which companies to invest in than simply growth or value. But I do think it might be helpful to kind of take a step back and talk about what are we re- what do we really mean by value versus growth. Uh, when I think about value, I think about a stock that has a somewhat uncertain future. Maybe that's because of a controversy. Maybe it's because the cash flows of that company are very dependent on the path of the economy. Um, or they're more volatile from year to year. And as a result of one or a combination of these things, that stock will trade at a discount relative to the market. Stocks in any sector can qualify as value, but the value indices tend to be more heavily weighted toward those industrials and financials that you mentioned. Growth, on the other hand, uh, is a stock that generates its own organic growth, irrespective of what's happening in the economy. So in a relatively slow growth economy like we've had over the past um, really couple of decades, Growth stocks that are generating their own organic growth tend to get bid up by investors and trade at more elevated valuations. So I don't think value is dead by any means. I just don't think we've had the the correct conditions for value to outperform. Uh, As I said, we would expect value to do better when growth, economic growth is increasing, when economic growth is coming in better than expectations, because that expectation component, what that baseline is, is very important. And also when interest rates are rising, and clearly this has not really been the backdrop of the past year or so. So uh, it's, it's not surprising though the numbers are a bit staggering when you look at the year-to-date performance of the Russell 1000 growth versus value, and you see that the spread between the two is nearly 30%. That's a huge, huge bifurcation. Um, I would not give up on value, but I do think that we need to see the economy start to come in a little bit stronger um, and interest rates to increase in order to have value outperform growth.
0: So you keep it in the portfolio, but you wouldn't really change horses and, and jump fully on the value horse.
1: Yes. Diversification is really important when it comes to factors, growth, value, and beyond momentum, quality, liquidity, those those other factors that we think about. Value has been known to snap back rather violently when those conditions do align. Um, so you definitely need to have some in your portfolio. Uh, and we prefer at this moment to be fairly balanced between growth and value.
0: Let's talk about the election. It's a big conversation in the country, in the world. I can't remember in my lifetime an election that seemed to have so much riding on it in a sense. And clearly from an investing standpoint, one would think that the outcome of the election would have some important consequences for investors. But it also seems that coming into the end of the summer with the Democrat ahead by over 10 points in the national polls and maybe even flipping the Senate, something seems to be a little bit different than historically. In other words, the the typical paradigms aren't really controlling the market because you would think that the the tax and spend Democrat would be bad for the markets, but the markets are still going up despite the, the polls. What do you see in all that and how do we play it as an investor?
1: So elections are tough. Uh, I think the first most important thing to remember is that you don't know what you don't know, and we don't know the outcome of the election at this point. We also don't know what the market's reaction to the outcome of the election will be. 2016 is still a fresh and vivid reminder that we need to be somewhat humble when trying to anticipate the market's reaction to an election. Uh, In this election in particular, taxes and regulation are certainly key, um, but I think that as you're alluding to, there are some other, um, issues at play that might not see the inverse of what we saw in 2016 in terms of the market's reaction if, uh, we see a democratic sweep in November. Uh, those issues are clearly the economy. We're at a, a very different and unique place in our, in our economy. We're, um, in a very deep recession and on the path to recovery. And in this type of a unique environment, we would expect um, different candidates' issues to maybe be reprioritized, maybe be pushed out. So um, there are some speculating that perhaps that tax increase won't come or it won't come right away because um, if we do continue to linger in this early, um uh Severe economic contraction, then it 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 would may not be the best time to be raising taxes on corporations,
0: and also the whole situation with China, right? Absolutely. I mean, one could make a a case that one of the reasons that these technology companies that we've just talked about are performing so well is because a new administration in Washington may have a less confrontational approach with China. And these companies in particular, have all of our economies, seem to be more levered to a positive relationship with China than, than most.
1: Yes. So tech is a huge part of the U.S. equity market, as we've just talked about. And technology companies are much more sensitive to Chinese relations, uh, in part because they derive a larger share of their revenues from overseas.
0: And also supply chains.
1: Supply chains that rely on partnerships with technology, they rely on workers who, who come over as well, and, and immigration. I don't think that there's any appetite in Washington for a really soft stance on China, but uh, we would expect a different approach to China, um, even if, if not necessarily going easy, but certainly a different approach to the tariffs that we saw in 2018 and 2019 from the Trump administration. And that could be a, a bit of a tailwind for technology stocks.
0: Just to summarize this part of the conversation, certainly we want to stay invested in equities. We want to be cautious, but we want to stay invested And we want to keep an overweight to these tech stocks where there may be a big benefit if we get a democratic outcome. But even if there isn't a democratic outcome, there's still a significant sort of secular tailwind given what's happening in the world and the economy of the world from a COVID standpoint for digital. And that's really what these companies are all about. So let's just talk about then, given that the U.S. dominates that part of the global economy, why do we even bother to keep an allocation to non-U.S.? I mean, the US seems to outperform almost every year. We seem to have an exceptional level of diversity, sort of capitalist-driven innovation in the in this country, um, which I I believe in very deeply and will continue. So why even include non-US equities?
1: It's a great question. Many have been calling for a so-called great rotation out of the US into leadership in non-US equities for years, and it hasn't come. Uh, Clearly, U.S. and non-U.S. equities are fairly closely correlated, um, but you tend to see that correlation break down pretty significantly during risk-off periods, and that's where um, we think the benefits of diversification can come in. I would also say that this this conversation is not all that different from the conversation we had around growth versus value, in that I think that there's certain conditions that need to align to see non-U.S. equities outperform U.S., um, one of those conditions is accelerating global growth. The past few years, we've really seen the U.S. growth um, outperform the rest of the world, but the current setup may be one um, as we look at the path of the virus uh, and, and different levers that these different regional economies have to pull. It could be one where we start to see the rest of the world um, outpace the U.S., and that would be an environment for non-U.S. equities to do better. Similarly, uh, a weaker dollar is also uh, a, a good setup for non-U.S. equities because U.S.-based uh, investors have to convert that currency back to dollars. So a weaker uh, U.S. dollar tends to lead to better Uh, dollar term returns for non-US equities. And I think that might be, as you think about the stimulus that's been put into the system from Congress, easy monetary policy, and growth starting to pick up in other parts of the world, uh, that might be a setup for dollar weakness and non-US outperformance.
0: Equities certainly do carry risk, obviously. And we have lots of clients, and there are lots of investors who do need income in their portfolios. So, where should people look for income in portfolios? And how is the muni market, the municipal bond market fair this year? And is it an area that presents some opportunity for investors or are yields just so low that we shouldn't expect much out of even municipal bonds right now?
1: Municipal bonds tend to be a bit of a sleepy asset class, but they've gotten a lot of action this year, um, and it's been anything but sleepy. Uh, they were hit very hard during the liquidity crisis of February and March, and we saw municipal bond volatility spike to an all-time high. Uh, this was for a number of reasons. That The two most, I think, that resonate with me are that municipal bonds were basically the first source of liquidity. For many investors who needed to sell, um, needed to sell assets to meet margin calls and, and things of the like, and then there are also areas of the muni market that were really at the epicenter of the COVID crisis: mass transit, airports, higher education, hospitals, and life care facilities. So we saw an opportunity um, back in March and April to add to muni bonds, and we still think they're an attractive asset class. That recovery is ongoing as we're looking at. Um, different measures of stress in the muni market. Credit spreads have compressed for investment-grade municipal bonds. Um, volatility has come down. The ratio of yield for a municipal bond versus a treasury of similar maturity has also come back down a little bit more in line with history. So the recovery is ongoing, ongoing for certain areas of the muni market, but we continue to find them uh, relatively attractive, particularly if you're an income-driven investor.
0: Yeah, and another area I would also mention for investors looking for income that are in the equity markets is the so-called covered call writing or uh, call writing overlay strategies where you buy equities, but you sell covered calls against them. Covered because you own the equity, you're selling a call, and the owner of the call has the right to buy that equity security from you at, at today's price typically if in fact the stock goes up, as an, as an example. And when you sell that right away, you collect a premium. And it's a way to add as much as 2% of additional income to a portfolio. So you've got equity-like returns potentially up to a certain level, depending on how those options are structured. So that's another way that people can focus on that, we, that we've that we been talking to clients a lot about to structure income into portfolios in an environment where income is, is tough to find. So let's um, move on to the last topic that I wanted to touch on today, which is... How do we hedge the risks that we're talking about in the economy? So unfortunately, there's not a lot of good options to the equity market, given that rates are so low and given that yields, uh, generally speaking, are so low. They may be negative from a real basis. So once we take into account inflation, so how do we hedge the risk in the portfolio? Because we are going to take probably more equity exposure than we might otherwise want to, because there are so few attractive alternatives to get return.
1: So one really attractive hedge for the portfolio that we are seeing right now is gold. Uh, gold has had a very nice run, make no mistake. Um, it's, it's back toward 2011 highs. But there's a couple of reasons why we think gold can continue to move higher over the long term. Gold does benefit from low yields. It's not an income generating asset. So anytime you're investing in gold, you're giving up essentially an opportunity cost of income elsewhere. But in today's environment, there is no income. Uh, The opportunity cost is essentially zero. So gold has become a more attractive place for investors to put their funds. There's also a really interesting dual optionality with gold at the moment. So if we think about hedging risks, we talk a lot about the downside risks, but there's also potential upside risks as well. And gold is an interesting hedge against both of those. So, for example, if we see a risk-off environment because the virus continues to spread around the country, um, unable to really get it under control, and we have to reverse some of these economic uh, reopenings that we've seen in recent months, we would expect that to be a risk-off uh, move for markets. Equities would probably see a bit of a correction, and funds would probably flow into a safe haven asset like gold. On the flip side, though, if we have a more robust economic recovery um, and maybe that weaker dollar environment that we were talking about and higher inflation from a mix of better demand from consumers as well as the plethora of stimulus that's been put into the system at this point, we would expect inflation to pick up. We would expect those real yields that you're talking about to decline And that's also a very favorable setup for gold. So you have this really interesting hedge against the so-called left tail and the right tail at the moment. um, And we think a modest allocation to gold is a really good way to hedge the portfolio.
0: Yeah, and I think I I would mention also, Megan, to add to your comments, that we've recently opened a position in gold. We've got about 2% of our portfolio in precious metals now, um, just slightly below that. And it may seem like a small position, But we think it's the time to initiate a position in gold because we think it can move a lot higher as the scenarios that you've just described. Um, Either one of them potentially takes shape over coming months. And the other thing about gold, I would add as well, is that we are in an environment where there may be significant dollar weakness in coming years as a result of the quantum of fiscal spending that we've engaged in as well as monetary support compared to the other countries in the world, um, we've certainly had our probably outsized share of spending in, in order to combat this um, economic catastrophe. And that the, the outcome of that could be a weaker dollar. And as the dollar weakens, commodities, in order to maintain the purchasing power parity, essentially, go up in value. And so that's another thing that favors gold, potentially, in this environment. Absolutely. So great conversation Let me sum up what I think, as I always do, are our key takeaways for today. First, I would say equities are very much still investable, even at these levels. We would caution probably dollar-cost averaging for new money going into the market. But due to TINA, the fact that there is no alternative from a return standpoint, the bond market is very unattractive overall. We would continue to recommend that people hold a target weight of equities that is around at least a third of the portfolio. Secondly, within the equity space, we continue to feel that these large cap tech growth oriented companies are going to continue to be leaders in the equity market in coming months and in coming quarters and indeed in coming years. We'll certainly see some rotation into the value oriented names where the tech stocks will lag. But over a long period of time, that's where the biggest gains we think are going to come for investor portfolios for the reasons that we've talked about relating to the increasing adoption of technology in order for humans to connect and and interact when they can't do so physically. And it's that simple. And then thirdly, um, we've talked about gold. And we've talked about the role that gold can play in a number of different economic scenarios, whether it's inflation, whether it's a risk-off situation, whether it's a weak dollar, where fiat currencies um, are becoming uh, viewed to be uh, increasingly risky from the perspective of the market. Uh, as the debt that sovereign countries are taking as a percentage of their GDP increasingly grows. And so we do think it's a good time to start to be very serious about gold in portfolios, not just for the short term, but for the long term. So thank you, Megan, for your insights today. It was great to have this conversation.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I want to thank our listeners for joining us. And I encourage you to visit WilmingtonTrust.com for a roundup of our investment and planning content. You can subscribe to Capital Considerations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast channel to ensure you get updates on future episodes. Thank you again for listening.
2: This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the sale of any financial product or service or recommendation or determination that any investment strategy is suitable for a specific investor. Investors should seek financial advice regarding the suitability of any investment strategy based on the investor's objectives, financial situation, and particular needs. The information on Wilmington Trust's capital considerations with Tony Roth has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. The opinions, estimates, and projections constitute the judgment of Wilmington Trust as of the date of this podcast and are subject to change without notice. Wilmington Trust is not authorized to and does not provide legal or tax advice. Our advice and recommendations provided to you is illustrative only and subject to the opinions and advice of your own attorney, tax advisor, or other professional advisor. Diversification does not ensure a profit or guarantee against a loss. There is no assurance that any investment strategy will be successful. Past performance cannot guarantee future results. Investing involves a risk and you may incur a profit or a loss. Any reference to company names mentioned in the podcast should not be constructed as investment advice or investment recommendations of those companies. Facts and views presented in this report have not been reviewed by and may not reflect information known to professionals in other business areas of Wilmington Trust or m Bank and may provide to seek to provide financial services to entities referred to in this report. m Bank and Wilmington Trust have established information barriers between their various business groups. As a result, m Bank and Wilmington Trust do not disclose certain client relationships or compensation received from such entities in their reports. Investment products are not insured by the FDIC or any other governmental agency, are not deposits of, or other obligations of, or guaranteed by Wilmington Trust, m Bank, or any other bank or entity, and are subject to risk, including a possible loss of the principal amount invested. Wilmington Trust is a registered service mark used in connection with various fiduciary and non-fiduciary services offered by certain subsidiaries of m Bank Corporation, including, but not limited to, Manufacturers and Traders Trust Company, m Bank, Wilmington Trust Company, WTC, operating in Delaware only, Wilmington Trust NA, WTNA, Wilmington Trust Investment Advisors, Inc., WTIA, Wilmington Funds Management Corporation, WFMC, and Wilmington Trust Investment Management LLC, WTIM. Such services include trustee, custodial agency, investment management, and other services. International corporate and institutional services are offered through M&T Bank Corporation's international subsidiaries. Loans, credit cards, retail and business deposits, and other business and personal banking services and products are offered by MT Bank, Member FDIC. 2021, MT Bank Corporation and its subsidiaries, all rights reserved.